This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 17 of Equestrian Legends. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is British eventer Richard Mead. Richard John Hannay Mead, OBE, was born April 12, 1938, in Chepstow, Wales, to John and Phyllis Mead, the second child of three with two sisters, Sarah and Jane. Richard was a member of the British eventing team for 21 years, during which time he won individual and team gold medals in the 1972 Munich Olympic Games and team gold medal in the 1968 Mexico Olympics. He also finished fourth on Jacob Jones in the 1976 Montreal Olympics and eighth at the 1964 Tokyo Olympics riding Barbary. His international record also includes two gold and two silver world championship medals and three gold European championship titles. In 1964, Richard captured the Burley Horse Trials Trophy and continued his four-star accolades with the Badminton Horse Trials in 1970 on the Poacher and in 1982 riding Speculator III. His horsemanship skills extend to training and riding point-to-point horses judging hacks, hunters, cobs, riding horses, and dressage. He is an FEI judge and course designer, as well as coach and trainer to competition riders from pony club to Olympic level around the world. Richard was educated at Lansing and Magdalen College, Cambridge, where he took an engineering degree and later became a financier. He also served as a troop leader in the cavalry regiment of the 11th Hussars. Richard is also an expert equestrian witness. He lives in West Littleton, Wiltshire, England, with his wife Angela, nay Farquhar, and the couple have three children, James, Harry and Lucy, and one grandchild, Lily Florence. Well, Richard, your biography reads of a man of many skills in the equestrian world, and uh, you have accomplished so many things, not least of all having been on the team for over two decades. But I also read that you're now an equestrian expert witness. What does that involve? Well, that's um, really a a matter of uh, when there's a litigation, um, which involves litigation involving anything to do with equestrian matters. Um, each side is uh, able to call in experts to, to really put the uh, equestrian side uh, across to advise the court. And so it's, it's really something that, uh, rather like if somebody has an accident um, and there's medical insurance or, or med- medical uh, experts are called in to give an opinion, uh, the same thing happens in equestrian cases sometimes. And as I said, you've done so many things in the equestrian world, uh, not least, of course, your international success, but uh, you've, you've gone on well beyond there. What is a typical day now in the life of Richard Mead? Well, at the moment, um, I, my son's got horses here, Harry. Um, they're based with me, so... Um, I certainly help guide him, and uh, when he wants advice, uh, he often comes to me. 
and uh, I do my best to give him wise counsel when required, and when not required, I try and keep my mouth shut. Typical uh, father-son arrangement. Um, And then I'm doing uh, the the equestrian witness, expert witness work as well. Right. And, of course, you're passing on a a long lineage of equestrianism in your family. Uh, Let's go back to your childhood, Richard, if we may. And, uh, of course, your parents were joint masters of the Corps Hounds in Monmouthshire. So you really got in the tack at an early age, didn't you? Yes, I I started riding when I was seven and uh, was hunting then and uh, hunted ever since. And I was... You know, had the opportunity to ride ponies from that stage on, and it really went from there. And you were born in Wales, so I guess uh, technically you're Welsh. Technically, I am. I, as, as I was born there, born in Chepstow, um, which is just over the Welsh border. And that was, of course, in 1938. Uh, let's go back to those very early days and your memories, Richard, of what that was like growing up in Wales as a young boy, one of uh, three children. You were the middle child, weren't you, the second boy? I was, yes, yes. Tell us a little bit about your earliest memories uh, as a young boy. What was it like growing up in Wales? Very, very quiet, of course, I'd imagine, in the, the Welsh countryside. Um, yes, but no, I didn't know different from um, England just over the border. You know, it was, it's, but it was very much um, a country, country background. Um, and I really, you know, found that riding was something that um, my parents encouraged, and my mother particularly. And um, I remember not only hunting, but also then joining the pony club. And I was a member of the Monmouthshire Pony Club for a good many years. And that was always a highlight of my summer holidays. Um, when uh, I went to all the pony club activities, and I think that had that and hunting had a big influence on my love of, of the sport of uh, riding cross-country. What else was in their involvement with horses? When I was very young, I think I was about uh, nine, um, we went over to Ireland, or maybe eight, we went over to Ireland in 1947. Um, and while we were there, it was a fortnight's holiday, it was the first time we'd ventured, really ventured it was abroad. Um, and we stayed in Connemara, and my parents came across a rather nice pony one day. We, we went for a walk, and she, my mother saw this pony over, uh, over the wall in a small paddock, liked it, and went back the next day, had another look, and the owner, the farmer, came up and owned the pony, um, and they became friends, my parents and, and he became friends, and they bought this pony uh, for a very small sum of money, brought, brought her back to England. She pure bred Connemara, and she was the start of a Connemara stud which my parents built up. So it was all uh, fortuitous somehow that um, we went out for a holiday there and came across this pony that actually became champion of the uh, 
breed in, in England. And were your sisters encouraged as well? Were they competitive with you as a child? They, they, uh, they enjoyed their hunting. They weren't particularly competitive. Um, I think I, I was the competitive one of the three, and uh, uh, that's the way I've always been. And tell us a little bit more about your parents, Richard. What did they do? What did your father do? Of course, uh, as you were born, we were coming into World War II. But um, what did your father do for a living? Well, he he was uh, headmaster of a prep school, and uh, he uh, was asked very much to keep keep running this at that, that time. And um, so I was I was brought up in a prep school and that was at home and then we moved um, later on uh, to the, just the other side of Chepstow and uh, where, where we had a, sm- a small farm and uh, that's where that's the, you know, the place that I regarded very much as home from then on. And with an educational background, did that make him a, a, a strict taskmaster? Was he a disciplinarian with you? No, a... not particularly. No, I think um, uh, it, it was a, a pretty normal upbringing. Um, he, he was uh, a very good father. You had a good relationship with him? Yes, yes, very good. What sort of values did your parents bestow upon you as a young boy? I think my my father was a very straightforward person. Very, um, he had strong views about um, the standards of behaviour and honesty, um, and he was he was just very straight down the line about things. Um, always saw the, the, the correct way of doing things, um, and my mother was passionate about um, horses. And, and riding, and I think she, it was she who very much encouraged uh, the perhaps latent interests that I had. And the moment I started riding, she really encouraged that and nurtured it. And did that come from grandparents on either side? Uh, yes, except she was her, her father died very young, so. But she had always enjoyed riding, and he had been a keen horseman. But uh, he, uh, he died when she was about seven, I think. So she didn't really remember him very well. And, of course, this very early time of your life was during the World War II. What were your parents' involvements in the war effort and your memories, if any, Richard? Of those days, uh, uh, well, uh, my father was very much in, involved with the Home Guard as well as doing running running the school. And um, then I don't remember much about it, except I do remember some air raids over Bristol, um, which we saw quite a lot um, with the searchlights and and the fighters. Um, and I can just remember that as a child. But I don't have a, a great deal of memory except the blackouts and everything. You know, the cars had virtually no lights um, and all the windows had to be blackened in the house. And my father acted as uh, in local parentis for quite a lot of boys 
who stayed with us in the holidays as well. So it was quite a community. Um, there's a lot going on, and he was uh, uh, working with a very with a skeleton staff, being the war, and uh, so was teaching all day, and then uh, did a lot for the Home Guard uh, in Western West Gloucestershire. Um, so he was out on patrols at night and uh, teaching in the day. But there was a tremendous community spirit because we we had quite a lot of boys there through the holidays as well. So you were able to engage with the boys and, and do all the things that boys do during the summer, regardless of the war effort? Uh, absolutely, yes. It was, um, uh, it, it was certainly that there was plenty going on. Fun summer memories, then, as a small boy at the school? Yes, absolutely. Yes, there was a, there were, there were good good crowd of boys, um, and we had a lot of fun. Did your parents ever tell you afterwards how it deprived them of any of the quality of life, actually going through a world war? No, I think the only thing is that uh, we had rationing until I was 15 years old, and so everyone had to be very careful not to waste things. And I still don't like wasting anything. I don't like wasting any food, you know, because I was brought up with having to be very careful because everything was rations. I mean, until I remember at school having my uh, coupons for chocolates, and I think one had one bar of chocolate a week, and of course, therefore, uh, chocolate was a huge luxury. Now it's there in plenty. Um, I, I hardly ever eat chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't have a taste for it. No, although noises have, have, have quite a bit to do with it also. They wouldn't, I wouldn't be a very good client. <laughs> <laughs> well, with your father being in education, you, of course, were given a very good education yourself. What were the early days like? I know you went to um, Lansing and then to Cambridge. Uh, let's talk about the very early days. Were you a good scholar? Um, I, I think I was average. Did you enjoy being in school, or was it the sports that distracted you as a boy? Uh, I, I quite enjoyed school. I, I wasn't passionate. I probably wasn't as, as diligent as some people. Um, but I enjoyed, I enjoyed sports, um, and I, I, was, I had a mathematical mind, if I got any mind at all, and I enjoyed mathematical things, particularly. Now, now, what about the sports at school, though? Did they give you a platform to start to be competitive, or was that already happening in the Pony Club? I think it was in the Pony Club um, that I became particularly competitive. And I just liked... I, I liked competition, and I, I found it uh, very exciting and stimulating. And uh, it, it really developed, I think, I think through... Jim Carnering, Hunter Trials, all that sort of thing. Do you have some favourite ponies? Yeah, I had, the first pony I had um, was a difficult pony to ride, and she, she's very unsuiting jumping. She's called Speedwell, and she was a, a little Welsh pony, and she was very difficult to sit on. And so I didn't particularly enjoy jumping until I was about nine when I got my next pony, and 
that pony was very comfortable to jump. And then I thought jumping was absolutely wonderful. Um, but before that, I was really quite nervous. Now, were you a boy that then, as you were getting more keen on the sport, were you watching other riders uh, of success at that time? Did you have any mentors that uh, inspired you? Yes, yes, very much so. Um, Harry Llewellyn was, you know, who, who comes from Monmouthshire as well. Um, in the so days of Fox Hunter, um, I was his greatest fan. And, of course, at the same time, David Broome, who's similar age to me, he, he was um, doing great things in show jumping. So but I think it was Harry Llewellyn who particularly inspired me. And he, in fact, was incredibly kind to me because uh, when I was 15, I was short of a, of a suitable horse to ride. And he lent a horse to the pony club um, for the interbranch competition for the you know, horse trials. And um, I was asked if I'd like to ride him. And I used to go over every, every day, actually, to, to his home and ride this horse. And uh, my mother very kindly drove me there. And I had instruction from his German groom, who, who had been brought up with the strict German dressage tradition. And so I had uh, really extremely good uh, instruction at that age when there wasn't much around in those days. And you enjoyed the discipline of dressage, did you then, Richard, as a boy? Well, I saw that if I was going to an event, um, it was uh, an important part, but it was something I had to learn from scratch. But I'd, I'd done a bit of showing, and when you're showing, you know, you're trying to ride the pony, this is on ponies, you're trying to ride the pony to, to the best of your ability to show the pony moving correctly and show it off well. And I suppose that gave me a bit of a feeling of presentation. And uh, then dressage was a sort of formalizing the um, groundwork and, and the training of, of the horse. And I, and I felt it was something that I knew nothing about and I didn't, wanted to learn. And it went from there, but I'd never said, I wouldn't say that I was ever a natural dressage writer, but I had to learn it. And of course, you were still at school as a teenager. Were you in Lansing then? Were you away Yes, at I was. And you see, I only rode in the holidays. Um, I, I never rode in the term time. So my riding was confined to a third of the year. What really inspired me to do eventing was the um, very first year that badminton was held. And we went to watch it. And we went on the dressage day, and it was amazing. The arena was just in front of the house. And there were two rows of bales around the outside of the arena. And that, and you took a rug along, put it on the bales, and that was your grandstand seat for the day. <laughs> and uh, people who came a bit later stood behind, probably three rows deep, and that was it. Uh, <laughs> Wonderful day, image, isn't it? Yes. Today. One day of dressage, and the next day was the cross-country day. And I do remember vividly, and I was nine years old, but I remember vividly uh, going there. It was a wonderful, warm, sunny spring day, April, in April. Um, and we walked around the course, 
And it was just like going to what would now be a pony club hunt trial or, or, or one-day event. I mean, there were perhaps 20 people at each jump, maybe some of them a few more. And I saw all these magnificent horses galloping around Babington Park. And I thought, this is the sport for me. It's the nearest thing to hunting in the summer. And I then thought, I really would love to do this. And it was from that moment on that it, it became a goal. And so you got the bug at a very, very young age then, at just nine. I did. I got the bug probably that one day. You know, just, it, it inspired me. And I saw what I, I, so sensational horses jumping, challenging jumps and making it all look very easy. They probably didn't at all, but at that age I thought it, it, looked, it made it look very easy. And anyway, that's what I wanted to do. Do you remember who the winners were at the... I think John Shedden won on Golden Willow. And, of course, some wonderful combinations oh. there that uh, made their mark in, in the record books of, of Babington, as indeed uh, you did in 1970 and 1982 by winning it yourself. That must have been a very special time for you from going as a nine-year-old boy watching uh, the sport then and then actually going back. All in your backyard, we should remind our listeners that you live within a stone's throw of Babington. Yes, I do now. Um, but the first time I rode at Babington was in 1963, and that was the, uh, the, the worst winter we've had for, well, the whole of the last century. Um, and it, it, there was snow on the ground, uh, deep snow from early December till mid-March. And instead of being a full three-day event, it was much more like a modern two-day event in that there were no roads and tracks and no steeplechase, but uh, quite a long cross-country course. And so it wasn't technically a three-day event then because it hadn't got the roads and tracks and the steeplechase. Um, and I remember driving to the course um, the morning of the cross-country and it was absolutely deluging. This is my first drive at Babington. And it was raining so hard. And my only thought was, well, I've spent so many years hunting and often got soaked and often in very uh, muddy conditions. Um, I was looking forward to it, thinking I had an advantage over quite a lot of people who hadn't had such experience. <laughs> <laughs> and I was actually full of confidence about it. And I thought, this is great. If I hunt my way around this course, I'll, I'll probably do all right. And, in fact, I, I had a, a, a wonderful ride and finished second. And which horse was that, Richard? Um, that was on Barbary. Right. And uh, who was to be a very uh, faithful partner to you. And I want to talk more about those successes at Badminton, Burley and beyond. But let's go back to uh, your teenage years where you then were sent up to Magdalen College, Cambridge. How did that come about, Richard? Was it that your parents encouraged you to go to university or, or were you of that mind that uh, you really needed to do this even though you wanted to go to eventing? No, I, I very much wanted to um, complete my engineering. In my, uh, I wanted to complete my um, education. And I'd done national service. 
I was one of the last people to do national service um, because it, 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 was, it came to an end um, just at the time I was leaving school. And I needn't have done it, but I did have two years set aside before going to Cambridge. Um, so I did national service, and I had thought of staying in the army, but I very much wanted to go to university. And um, I'm very glad I did. I had the most wonderful three years there. And during that time, um, I did a lot of writing as well. What were the highlights of being up in Cambridge? I made the greatest, my greatest friends I made during that time. And I now see probably 10, 15 of them regularly. Um, and it, it was a time, yes, I think we were very lucky. It seemed to be a vintage year. There were a great crowd of people there. And they, you know, we've, we've kept up and we've got a, We've got a Shadowing Club that um, meets every year or two. Um, and we still see each other because while we were there, we, we felt it was such a, a great experience with people we got to know that we must keep in touch, and we have done. Um, so it was, that side was great. It was also just, uh, I, I enjoyed university life. I enjoyed the whole setup and uh, get back on it with great nostalgia. Richard Mead has a persona of being very formal, but was there a wild side to him in college? I had my moments. <laughs> <laughs> in those days, things were pretty relaxed. And I do remember uh, my tutor, uh, when, when we arrived, uh, it was a small college, Magdalen, and there were 90 of us that year, and I suppose 30 of us came under one tutor. And when he was talking to us, he said, um, you can do more or less what you like while you're here. Nobody's going to put any pressure on you. Um, and the only thing is, if you get into trouble, you're out late, you get stopped by the police, or stopped by the proctors who are the university police. I mean, they're employed by the university to, to make sure people behave themselves. Uh, if you're stopped by them, what you must do is to give your name and college and own up to whatever you've done, and then we'll look after you. Uh, but if you pretend you're somebody who you're not, then nobody's going to support you. And I thought that was a, a, an amazing fatherly chat. Um, and things were very friendly, very relaxed. And I think, you know, everyone behaved, yes, irresponsibly at times, but there was that great feeling that you were part of a, part of a family almost in, in the collegiate system. And there were moments, I'm sure, on the river punting in the summer... Oh yes, yes. Occasionally turning things, turning punt over. <laughs> quite, 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 a, quite a few amusing times. Happy memories indeed. And yes, you graduated, Richard, with an engineering degree, and, mm -hmm. and you mentioned you have a mathematical mind. Where, where did this come from? 
Well, I really, it, it, it was not that I particularly wanted to be an engineer, but I, I did um, maths, higher maths and physics at A-level. And that seemed to be the logical thing to do. Looking back on it, I, I think I would have preferred to have done an art subject because um, I like people and I, one of the humanities might have been more interesting. Um, I wasn't that dedicated to engineering, in fact. Um, so I did try and uh, do what was necessary and also pursue my writing seriously. So it, it, it was, uh, I had a very full time while I was there. And you mentioned you'd done national service, so was that the... Well, that was what I did, yes. That was the, with the 11th Hussars, that was national service. But I did go back for a couple of weeks, um, which was an option I could do. I went back a couple of times to do two weeks training uh, because I was on the reserve list, so if there'd been um, a war somewhere, I could have been called up again um, to, to serve. Um, and it, it was good because I kept in touch with my regiment. And what did what did that involve then, being in the 11th Hussars? What what responsibilities did you have? Well, cavalry regiment. I was in, uh, um, I I was a, a troop leader, um, and that was, for instance, uh, I spent six months in Northern Ireland and out on patrols in in uh, armor cars with with with. Um, my troop, we had three armored cars out um, on patrol. And uh, we also ha had horses um, because it was a cavalry regiment. Most of the officers rode. And so I was able to continue with my sport as well. Now, what did uh, eventing look like for you at that time, Richard? What, what, what horses did you have? After finishing national service, uh, my sisters and I drove out to Rome to watch the Olympics. And this was in 1960. And um, having seen that cross-country again, and, and we watched the whole Fiedler event, um, not only did I w wish to do the sport seriously, but also to get in the Olympic team. And I thought that if I had a bit of luck and if I really dedicated myself, I might get in the team for Tokyo in four years' time. And not the following winter, but 18 months later, I went over to Ireland during the Christmas holidays to see if I could find an Olympic horse. And I got in touch with um, friends, Patrick and Patrick Conley Carew and his sister, Diana, uh, who, Diana was a show jumper, and she advertised for event, young event horses and rang around a whole lot of people. And I went out for a fortnight. And we looked at a lot of horses and nothing sort of appeared on the scenes that thought, I thought was going to make the grade. And then the day before I was due to leave, um, Diana said, uh, there is a horse up the road, but it belongs to a great friend who's bred six generations of horses that our family have, uh, but she doesn't sell them. 
So, but we were in Hansie on the telephone and went and, went and had a look at the horse and then said, look, we do like him very much. And I must say, I, I took to him in a big way. He was six years old. He hadn't done anything, but um, he was a lovely mover. And anyway, we said to her, look, would you ever part with him? And she said, well, if you think you can get him to the top, you can have him. As long as he, 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 as long as he comes back to me when you finish with him. And what I did, I leased him with a view to the, him going back to Ireland for how to hunt when I'd finished eventing. And that horse came over to England um, a fortnight later. I was back at Cambridge at the time, and he came by train, and I picked him up at Euston Station uh, with a Land Rover and trailer. I drove it onto the platform, oh, yeah. and uh, he was unloaded from a transports, you know, come on a goods train. And I went to his carriage, unloaded him, led him to the end of the platform, and put him into the trailer, and drove him to Cambridge. Oh, what a and that was the start. That was the start of uh, a partnership that took me to the Olympics and the World Championships. It certainly did. But what a wonderful image of you picking him up off the train at Euston Station. <laughs> yes, yeah, so one of one of the porters asked me what she was, and, and uh, I said he was also like picking up. I hope he was going to do great things. And he wanted to hear his name because I think he was convinced he was a racehorse, and that he, he would then back him when I when he was running. Want to hear his name? <laughs> well, he certainly was a horse that I'm sure you glad you you, you backed him um, when you spotted him in Ireland and went on to great things with him, Richard. What sort of personality was him? What made you click with him? Uh, what I found interesting was he was very light on his feet, very athletic, but very sensitive. Um, and that, the sensitive side, made him quite difficult to train because uh, I had to be careful not to make mistakes on him. Um, but he, was, he had a lot of courage. And um, I think the fact that he was a sensitive horse and you had to really work out how to get the best out of him. It's made every horse I've ridden since that little bit easier. And I think it was very good training for me to have to learn to ride him. Um, and I think he was brilliant because he did take me to the top and I really knew very little. Um, I just had a, a desire to do it and had a certain amount of experience of riding across country through hunting. Now, those early days of selection, of course, are different to what they are today. Um, what were your memories of when you first realised that you had been selected for the British team to uh, compete internationally? What Did it come as a surprise, or did you always realise that you were making your way to, to, in, in front of the selectors? Well, I think that was, uh, that was my aim. So uh, it wasn't so much a surprise as... as a, a fulfillment of, of a dream and you know it's something I've, I've been inspired first of all by that first badminton and then the, the horse I rode for Harry Llewellyn that I was 
talking earlier about um, for the Pony Club. Uh, we actually went on to, to come second in the Pony Club Championships as a team. And I won the Boys Championship. In those days, they had a Boys Championship because uh, at that stage, uh, women weren't allowed to ride in the Olympics. So the authorities were trying to encourage boys in, into the sport. So at the Pony Club level, they, they had a Boys Championship, uh, which I managed to win that year. Um, and that, again, so inspired me to go on. And at that stage, I, I really had a, a, an aim to get in the British team for the Olympics. And so when it actually happened, it was more a, fulf- a fulfillment of, of a dream. Well, that was just the beginning of a long career as a team member. What did you regard as your strengths as a competitor, Richard, that gave you the success that it did, apart from obviously being on the right horses? I think that uh, two things. Firstly, um, I I only went into the sport, really, because of the cross-country. I absolutely loved the cross-country phase and the challenge of it, the excitement of it, and the buzz it gave me. Um, And the show jumping I had to work at, and I think my my strength was my cross-country riding, and and the other thing was that I was always trying to analyze how to improve every aspect of the training of of each horse I rode and understand each horse. Um, And I do remember at the time, um, reading somewhere that uh, Sheila Wilcox had said, you know, she she thought she was like Muhammad Ali, and that that you know she was, had to believe that she or she believed that not that she was the greatest necessarily, but she, it was mind over matter, and she was going to get that horse to to do what she wanted. And I had a rather different approach, was I wanted to not make a horse do something, but to get the horse to want to do it. And in a way to to try and build up a really good, close partnership. When I think if the horse trusts you, it's going to do everything for you. Um, and that was something I, I really worked on and believed in. And I think that was my whole approach to the training of horses. And I rode a lot of different horses, and some of them had been quite difficult. Um, and I never worried about that, because I always thought that there was always a chance of, of sorting out problems. I didn't always succeed. <laughs> um, it, it, was, it was that belief that if you could find the right buttons to press, um, you could... You, cure a lot of a lot of problem horses well you did extend your skills um, not just to eventing and the show ring but also training and riding point-to-point horses where did that come about richard was that all part of your your love of going cross-country at speed yes it, it was i i got some rides early on and and uh train some point-to-pointers as well but i had to get i had to make a decision uh, whether to 
go on point to point or to events, and I couldn't do both. Uh, one of the ways in those days to get rides in point to points was to qualify the horses um, because they all had to hunt, depending on the hunt, but usually seven or eight times. And while I was at Cambridge, I was offered quite a lot of, I had quite a lot of rides while I was there. And I was offered horses to point to point, but I had to qualify them and get them out hunting. And I just thought that if I do too much of that, it will detract from what I'm trying to do with the eventing. And I took a decision to phase that down, the point pointing, um, and build up the eventing. Would you have had any trainers at that time, Richard, or were you making your own way once you'd left Cambridge? Well, I went out to uh, Germany with a British team the um, summer after I left Cambridge. And that, that was my first trip abroad with a British team. And uh, we had a wonderful time in Munich. It was effectively a European championship, although it wasn't, there was no championship in name that year. Um, but all the top European countries were there. And we won the team title there. And I, had, I so enjoyed the time out in Munich. And I saw that in Germany you had such good trainers. And they were way ahead of us in dressage at that time. Um, and so while I was there, I made a plan to go back in the winter because I just left Cambridge, and it was the year before the Tokyo Olympics. So, and I had an ambition to try and get in the Tokyo team. And I thought that the best thing to do was to try and go out there because the previous winter had been this very hard winter when I was at Cambridge, and it was absolutely impossible working horses in the conditions we had at, at, at Cambridge because there weren't indoor, there weren't sort of all weather surfaces to work the horses on and uh, I thought if we have another winter like that um, I'm not going to make any progress and it would be wonderful to go back to Germany and so I went back for three and a half months that winter and trained with Otto Karpolman, who was uh, he, he was in the Olympic team in Rome, a German Olympic team. And I trained with him for three and a half months, and it was the best thing I ever did because I learned so much during that time. And that sort of um, expertise wasn't really available in this country at that time. Well, it certainly stood you in good stead. In 1964, you were placed in Tokyo, and then, of course, you went on to win the team gold medal in 68 at the Mexico Olympics. But were you spending your whole time in the sport at this time, Richard, or did you have another profession? Would you have been regarded as professional? I was, uh, I was uh, doing, for quite a bit of time, I was reporting on racing for the Times. And so I was doing that sort of part-time and, and riding the rest of the time. And, and, and then um, I, I got into the financial planning world and was working for a, a London firm, which was, I was able to do part-time and, and, and ride as well. So dividing your time between the city and the country. Yes.
You've done so many competitions, Richard, at international level, but uh, having competed at uh, a few Olympic Games, a big difference between Tokyo and Mexico. Mexico, of course, is so famous for sometimes for the wrong reasons. For those of us with a long memory of the cross-country from Mexico, what did you take away from those Olympic Games, apart from the medals, of course? Oh, I mean, we had we had the most wonderful, happy time there. Uh, in that it was it was a very uh, good team. In in that we were all great friends. We worked very closely together. There was a very good team spirit, and uh, it, it was an absolutely wonderful venue uh, where where the through the event was held um, at a Vanderbilt which is a golf course up in the mountains. Um, there was the problem on the cross-country day of uh, two-inchful rain. Um, and I felt very sorry for the Mexicans over that because uh, the rainy season should have finished ten days before, or in fact three weeks before, and it, uh, and it was very late that year because the, the, each morning there was a cloudless sky. And then at about... One o'clock, between one o'clock and two o'clock, a big black cloud would appear over the mountain, and within twenty minutes, half an hour, it would be absolutely deluging with rain. And the rain might last an hour, it might last three hours, it might go on till ten o'clock at night. Um, and it was supposed to have finished, but it didn't. And they kept saying, um, "Oh, it will finish in the rainy season. Will finish in three days' time." It kept going on three days' time, three days' time. And in fact, the rainy season finished three days after <laughs> the event finished. And on cross-country day, I was riding down hill from the steeplechase course on Ferry Sea, coming down to the 10-minute um, box before the cross-country itself. And I heard a clap of thunder and looked up and saw this big black cloud looking blacker than ever appearing over the mountain. And by the time I got to the end of the sea into the box area, it was completely deserted. And what everyone had done was to move into a, a, a barn quite close. But it was full of people as well as um, all, all the horses waiting to start or having just finished the cross country. So I had to fight my way in and um, then go out to do the cross country itself. And it was absolutely deluging. Um, and not only deluging, but um, very steamy. So visibility wasn't at all good. And... Uh, I just wondered whether horses would be able to cope with jumping cross-country fences in those conditions because the visibility was so bad. But it, it, it um, worked out right in the end. Of course, you had good experience of it at Babington, as you said earlier, of ride, riding in, in extremely wet conditions. Yes, but this was, this was much worse because it, it, was, it was so hard. It was a tropical storm. And I seriously wondered whether horses would be able to see what they were doing because um, in their natural state, in those conditions, they just turn their backs to the rain 
and try and try and find a bit of shelter, and if they couldn't, they just turned their backs to the room and, and wouldn't wouldn't move. Um, and when I rode to the first fence, which was a great big um, viaduct over, so brick brick viaduct over one of the bunkers on the, the golf course, um, which was very brightly painted, um, like a show jump. And of course, that was easy to see, and the horse jumped it very well. But the second fence was um, just a rail into a wood, into woodland. And as I rode to it, I found it quite difficult to see where I was going. I could see the flags of the fence, but uh, it, it really, the, the rail of the fence sort of disappeared into, into the background. It, didn't, it wasn't at all clear. And so as I rode to it, I just thought, you know, can the horse see what he's going to jump? And actually he did, he jumped it beautifully, and I knew from that moment on it was all going to be all right. But it, it certainly, I had my moments around that course. How did the horses finish? Did they recover well from that despite Yes, yes, absolutely, because, I mean, it, it wasn't too hot. Um, it, it, it just meant that um, I went after the rain. Half, half the people got round before the rain. And once the rain came, uh, everyone was going that much slower. Um, you, you had to, because you had to rather hunt your way around. And um, you, you couldn't, you couldn't um, ride your stopwatch or anything like that. You just had to get round. Um, but uh, Cornishman finished absolutely fine, and was was uh, none the worse the next day. Cornishman, of course, became a star in his own right, didn't he? He did. He, he was an amazing horse, and Mary had ridden him at Babington that year. Mary Gordon Watson, uh, of course. Mary Gordon Watson. And um, she broke her leg, her ankle, at, at um, the International Horse Show. She had a fall and therefore couldn't, couldn't ride for the next few months. And her father, who owned the horse, and she very kindly lent the horse to the team. And Ben James, who was in the team with me in Mexico, was riding him. And then Barbary had a fall at the final trial, which was at Burley. And so he was out, and my my second horse was went lame, and I was then asked to ride Cornishman, and Ben James was asked, put on the poacher who belonged to Martin Mikey, and I had very little time to get to know Cornishman, and I rode him for eighteen days for all the Olympics, and I only jumped one fence on him in England, one cross-country fence. And then um, I was told, well, he's a, he's a good horse and you'll get plenty of time out in, in Mexico to school when you get there. But when we got there, the only cross-country fences were in a, in a rather small paddock and they were huge. And we decided that it would be a, a kamikaze job to start um, schooling over those, so none of us jumped them. So I had to rely on just working over what show jumps were available, getting to know Cornishman, and hoping for the best. And so when it came to riding that cross-country course, um, I jumped literally one cross-country fence on him. 
And I did say to Bill Lithgow, our Sheffield keepers, we were standing there at the start of the, of the cross country when in this deluge, and he was there in his shirt sleeves, uh, absolutely <laughs> drenched the skin. I said, you know, this is extraordinary, isn't it? You realize I've only jumped one fence on this horse before. <laughs> and he roared with laughter, slightly out of nervousness, I think, more than anything else. Uh, but we did, we had a bit of a laugh about it. Um, but I did have a wonderful ride on him. And uh, he, he, he was brilliant. And as I jumped the last fence, Mary, who I can't remember if her leg was still in plaster or he was out of plaster, but as I jumped the, the brass fence and turned for a finish, I saw her scampering across the golf course to, to um, welcome us through, through the finish at the end. And it was a very exciting moment, uh, I think, for, for Cornishman Mary and me. That's a wonderful memory, as you said. He he became such a star with Mary in his own right, but to have picked up a catch ride with uh, to such success must be uh, one of your most fondest memories, I would imagine, of all your achievements. Well, it was it was, it was very very exciting, and um, he, he was a special horse, not the easiest in dressage because he he was quite lazy when the weather was hot, which it tended to be out in New Mexico and until the rains came. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Mary did incredibly well on him, and, of course, he, he was very much uh, part of our team in Mexico, in Munich. Right. Well, let's go on to Munich in 1972, Richard, uh, and where you picked up, as I said, the team and as well as the, the individual medal there. Uh, really doesn't get any better than that, does it? Well, it... It, it's the ultimate, I suppose. It, it really was. And I, what was wonderful, actually, was I think if I'd won the individual and we hadn't won the team, it would have been a rather lonely position to be in. But when the team wins, you know, it, it's such an excitement. You've got three other people to share it with. And that makes it very special. And that team medal in Mexico, particularly with the conditions we had to deal with, made it so special. Um, but Munich, obviously, was was a, a double whammy, really, getting, you know, because we had the team, and I ended up with the individual as well. So that was a very happy moment. How did you celebrate? That night, we were whisked off to various... Uh, radio and television dues and then we all met up in, in, in the nightclub at the hotel, one of the hotels in, in Munich where most of the British supporters seemed to be I and mean, the whole place had been taken over by the Brits and we, we had a, a party till I think 7 o'clock in the morning and survived to tell the tale <laughs> and survived to tell the tale from what I remember <laughs> Those Olympics in Munich were, were very exciting and wonderful. And what was so nice was that in both Mexico and, and Munich, um, we were in the village, or, or we went to the Olympic village from Avandro, where the three events had been held. This is in, in Mexico. And, and because the three events was at the beginning of the Games, 
we then had the rest of the games to uh, enjoy what was going on. And, of course, arriving there as gold medalists, we were fated by all the Brits, and that was very exciting. Um, in Munich, um, of course, the, the, the whole games were overshadowed by the um, Israeli hostages, um, which, you know, was quite a blight. And I suppose that's when the Olympics became, from then on, a, a serious security problem. But before that, everything had been much more relaxed. Tell me more about Lauriston. Well, Lauriston was, um, when I wrote him, he was seven years old. And it, I wrote him in the autumn. Um, after he had been out in the test event in Munich, um, he'd been written by Mike Tucker there. And about a fortnight later, the uh, owners, uh, Derek and Claude Alhusen, Derek, uh, telephoned me and said, would I like to ride Lauriston? And uh, I said, well, great. Um, and I rode him in a couple of competitions and found him a very sharp little horse and quite difficult and he had a history of being difficult um, and I said that I thought the only hope of getting him to the Olympics after I'd done two competitions on him uh, would be to hunt him and would that be possible and Derek very kindly agreed although he, he it, I think it was against his better judgment um, because I'd, he didn't hunt his horses and anyway, he agreed to it, and I hunted the horse in, in Derbyshire, gave him nine days, and I think it made all the difference to his um, technique of going across country. And anyway, um, I didn't think he was quite ready for the Olympics, although he'd come second at badminton. Um, he was a sharp little horse and quite difficult, and quite headstrong. Um, and I was asked what I thought of my chances out in Munich. Um, and I said, well, I wish the Olympics were coming a year later. But in practice, um, he, he, he went really brilliantly. And he was a brilliant horse. I knew that right from the start. Um, but he, I, I had hairy moments on him. <laughs> um, but he'd been very, you know, it was absolutely brilliant of Derek to ask me to write him. And uh, it was so exciting when he won. And, of course, uh, Derek and Claude were over the moon about it because uh, they bred him. And uh, he was really their new lamb. And when you went to Montreal, of course, we're getting much closer to the more modern era. Richard, what would you consider to have been the differences in being on the team? I don't think things were, were very different. Um, we did find the security quite irritating because it, it was a bit over the top, um, particularly at Bromont, which was out in the sticks. It, 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 and we, you know, we got to know everyone there, and the security was was over the top. But I think the Canadians were very worried 
in case they had a repetition of what went on in Munich. Um, but the games, the games haven't changed a lot. I mean, the format of the three-day event was exactly the same. Um, and Bromont, where all the equestrian sports were, um, apart from the team show jumping, which was held in the Olympic Stadium, um, there was a very good spirit. And this was Jacob Jones, of course, that you finished just this outside the medals, medals with him. What do you remember yes. of the ride he gave you then? Well, Jacob Jones was not a very brave horse. Um, he was a thoroughbred horse, but of a certain amount of ability. But I remember being asked while we were in training um, how I hoped to do. And I s- said um, that I would be happy if I got in the first ten, but I'd be surprised if I got in the first six on him. Uh, that's from an individual point of view. Um, I wasn't as confident riding him as I had been on my previous Olympic horses. Um, but on the day, uh, he, he went very well cross-country, and I think he was about the fourth fastest time. Uh, nobody got round in the time, um, but he, he did a fast go around, and we ended up fourth, which I think, looking back, was probably as I would regard it as one of my best achievements because I didn't expect to do as well as that. Well, of all the medals, Richard, and the Badmintons and the Burleys, the Europeans, the World Championships, of all of your accomplishments, of which are you most proud when you look back on your career? I suppose... In a way, Jacob Jones coming forth in Montreal, although coming forth is is really nothing um, in the sense that there's no medal for it. And you always think of gold, silver, and bronze, and that's it. Um, But that horse the year before, I didn't think he had much chance of getting into the Olympic team even. And so that that was... um, I remember saying something at the time. I thought that, that was, from a personal point of view, quite an achievement, but it would never be recognised as such because uh, on paper it doesn't mean anything very much. Well, being the competitor that you were, Richard, did anything ever intimidate you as a rider, apart from the dressage? I don't think the dressage <laughs> intimidated me. It was just something I, I always had to work at, but I think you know I, I did well enough in it to to be able to win competitions. Um, I think probably my weakest point was show jumping. Um, I hadn't had, again, there wasn't the expertise around it there is today. And if I knew what I know now, I think I would have ridden a lot of horses a lot differently in in show jumping. Um, But intimidating, no. I think the, the thing is that you're intimidated or I would be intimidated if I had to ride in a competition on a horse that I didn't think was capable of doing it. And all the horses I rode, I got to them, I got to the point where I trusted them, that provided I rode them correctly, they would have a good chance of getting around the course. And... Um, but I wasn't intimidated particularly by the, the 
nature of the competition. In fact, I found the bigger the competition, the more at ease I was. So you were not a, a nervous competitor then? You were able to channel your anticipation into positive energy? Yes, I think so. I mean, people said, are, are you nervous And I, at a competition? And I don't know quite what nerves are, but I, I was keyed up. But I wasn't, I wasn't frightened by it. But I would be keyed up. But I showed it in, in, by appearing probably to be very laid back. And I think comparatively I probably was quite laid back. Um, but I found the big competition got about the right amount of adrenaline flowing. Now, if you passed on those genes to your son, Harry, and do you see any similarities with his competitive style to yours? Yes, I think, I think his cross-country riding, you know, he, he's a natural. Um, and I think he, 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 we walk the courses together very carefully, and he likes to analyze things in great depth. Um, and he wants to do one course walk with me, having walked the course himself on his own, and he wants me to have walked it on my own. And then we pool our thoughts. And he works out exactly what he's going to do. And sometimes, when he talks to it afterwards, something has gone wrong, or he's jumped a fence differently from how he planned. And he he would say, I'd ask him why, and he'd tell me why. And something happened on the approach, so he immediately altered his line because of this. And I thought that is a sign of somebody who has got what it takes. You have become, a, over your career, an all-round equestrian. How would you like to be remembered? Would it be as a sportsman or a horseman? I think as a friend, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think a horseman. And I think uh, many people would regard you as that. It's been an amazing career, Richard. Do you still spend some time in the tack? Are there opportunities to go riding with your son? Yes, and I loved working the young horses, and I'm still doing so. I, I rode a couple of them yesterday, and I'll be riding one tomorrow. And uh, I, I love working on the horses that I, that I think have got a future, because I always... I always used to, whenever I was riding my young horses or, and, 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 and the older horses, I always had a competition in, in mind, you know, as I was aiming them for, and everything was done to try and get them to that competition. And I can relive that with the young horses of Harry's. Thank you so much for sharing your memories with us and being my guest this week. Thank you. Please join me again next time when we visit the life of another equestrian legend. Mm -hmm.